Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. So we're back on the Labour trail today, just under six weeks, can you believe it, until we get a winner. But the voting has now begun in the contest to replace Jeremy Corbyn. Members and supporters getting their ballots this week. And uh, we've got the likes of Keir Starmer, Lisa Nandy, Rebecca Long-Bailey still in the running. They've all said they'll give jobs in the shadow cabinet to their rivals if they win. Yes, and I noticed that Jeremy Corbyn said he wouldn't mind being shadow foreign secretary. Not sure I can see that exactly, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Meanwhile, let's talk. Let's hear from one of them, Lisa Nandy says the contest has brought them all closer. I've actually come to like and respect them even more since this contest has gone on. At one point, Becky and I said, when this is over, we'll go and have a drink and we'll have one drink for every hustings we've done, (laughs) which is a lot of drinks. And Rebecca Long-Bailey has been talking too. She says if she loses, she'll still happily serve in the Shadow Cabinet. Keir and Lisa are brilliant and we all get on with each other in real life, despite what you might see on Twitter or anywhere else. But I will be happy to serve under any of their leaderships. And I know that as you as members would expect the same thing. I know, I like the idea it's not real life that they're involved in most of the time. (laughs) It's all the Truman Show. (laughs) Right, let's get into this, shall we? Bloomberg's Stuart Biggs is here. He's our UK government editor. Stuart, so about six weeks to go, there is a history here of outsiders winning. Can anyone, the question is, stop Keir Starmer at this stage? It's certainly starting to look... uh, unlikely at this stage. There's just so much kind of um, data showing that he's got a sizable lead on every category of the sort of Labour across the Labour Party. So it would be a surprise, but there's, you know, there's six weeks to go. Uh, A lot could depend on, you know, how quickly people vote when their ballots arrive. Do they go straight out and and post off their answer. Or that tends to be the case, doesn't it? It tends to be the, that would sort of lead more towards an expecting a star of uh, comfortable victory, but we'll see, has six weeks left, so. Is it not also possible, I mean, many of these people are quite well-versed in, I suppose, the, the world, the real world, perhaps, that uh, that we were hearing about just then, and perhaps might not be wholly honest, necessarily, with pollsters. I mean, this could be something completely different. Particularly, one thinks, perhaps, the people who backed Jeremy Corbyn before might be very suspicious of people asking questions. I think that the, the Jeremy Corbyn angle on this is quite interesting, because all three candidates are sort of to a certain, to, to different degrees, they're trying to sort of step around the Corbyn issue because they know that the momentum uh, group within Labour that there's Corbyn, despite uh, December's result, remains hugely popular. And so, how do you deal with that legacy? Obviously, Long Bailey has more of the the kind of continuity candidate uh, idea, um, and the other two differ with him 
to varying degrees. But but how do you deal with that? And I think that's why some of the awkwardness over the last week over who serves in whose shadow cabinet, does Corbyn get a role in the shadow cabinet? No one wants to quite come out and, and, and say on that point. Not at this stage. At this stage. So it's fair to say then that Corbynism hasn't really gone away or won't go away regardless of who wins. How does that play out given the resounding defeat we saw in December at the public just saying this isn't something we want? To a certain extent, I don't think it's surprising that they can, any of the candidates will move away entirely. There is a sense within Labour that on a, uh, certainly on economic and social and, and you know spending, for example, issues that, that actually... Uh, what's happening now within the government is there's a you know perhaps proof that the public was was pushing that way, uh, especially on NHS uh, spending and on uh, on the idea of the need to level up. You know both parties had that sense in common going into the election. So you know to to move away entirely is it would be a strange thing to do. Obviously there's huge differences between what they stand for but with the Tories and, and, and what these candidates are going to push for. But but on the on the idea of some of the things that Corbyn stood for, you know, it will be a continuity. Stuart, it's all been almost like a phony war so far because no one's really been unpleasant to each other. And let's face it, in what they call the real world, um, you know, normally people are at this stage perhaps hurling things of various kinds at each other. Could it get a bit that way, do you think? I think if it's going to happen, it will be this week when the, the you know the pressure's on now with ballots arriving. Uh, that you know you might get a sense that uh, the candidates will will want to make their points a little bit more forcefully. But having said that, there's nothing so far that sort of makes you think there's no sort of um, uh, bar where they can't you know roll it back at some point if they need to if they're serving in the same uh, shadow cabinet. There's nothing that's been said I think so far that that, that would preclude that. Whether that changes as the pre- as the clock ticks down, we'll have to see. Well, let's talk about that show, those shadow cabinets. We uh, discussed the fact that they might be able to serve in each other's, and that seems largely to be uh, what they're happy with. Who else could we see? Well, obviously, uh, there's some big names uh, in Labour that that were perhaps didn't have the prominent roles under Corbyn, but you could see them coming back. You could see uh, Yvette Cooper taking a role. You could see. Uh, a former leader Ed Miliband taking a role. There are some big Labour names. Hillary did, Benn, I suppose. Hillary Benn didn't quite fit with the Corbynism fully, but uh, but but you know, I think all three candidates will be uh, pretty determined to have a, a heavy hitting shadow cabinet. Uh, they'll be determined to make it one that can uh, try to finally bring the various wings of the Labour Party together, which are perhaps wasn't quite a priority under the previous leadership. That's almost impossible, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's a target that, well, the Labour Party's never managed to reach any real harmony. I think the Labour's view right now is that uh, while it's a, certainly a challenge and it's a very broad uh, you know, political spectrum that the party covers, that unless they can do better at unifying, that it really will be a prolonged period in the wil- political wilderness. So there's really... No point. I, I certainly agree that it's a it's a challenge, but the you know the the onus is on the, on the party to try to do it. Um, what about this other story we're looking at today? Priti Patel spat with her permanent secretary. Comes a week or so after there was an advisor in number ten fired for having some quite fruity views on certain things. Not a good look for the government in general. It hasn't been a good look for the government. There's a there's a sense at the moment that uh, obviously. 
it's a it's a very sort of um, the government has very different demands on on what it wants to achieve, and perhaps you are seeing a kind of a clash within the uh, you know the civil service establishment versus a, a government that's come in with some very different ideas. Let's be honest, uh, and so maybe you're seeing part of that. Having you know, it's it's a, it's not ideal for the government in the sense that you know last week Pretty Patel's department was in charge of this huge rollout of a post-Brexit. Uh, immigration plan that's going to change, you know, change life for businesses across the spectrum. And yet within within days, you know, you're talking about a bullying, uh, allegations of bullying, you're talking, you know, they've had to come out fairly strongly today to deny these things. That's not what they want to be talking about. It's all around the Home Office, too. I mean, it is all around Pretty Patel, it seems, because we had the uh, collapse of someone that perhaps wasn't related to it, but seemed to be involved in that bullying dispute, the immigration issue itself. Now the suggestion of the security service, which is pretty unprecedented for them. You know, they are people of the shadows by their nature to come out and say these kind of things. And that was really reflected in how strongly the government's had to come out this morning and, and, and sort of deny these things is taking place you know it's it's a it's a key government department and it's a key government department that right now is trying to do some very uh, dramatic policies policy shifts and so you know the 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 stakes are very high uh for Patel for the for Boris Johnson for um for, for what the how to shape a post brexit britain uh you know that there's going to be tensions could we see this go further? I saw a report in the Sunday Telegraph that the vote leave block within Downing Street are looking to get rid of other senior civil servants who they think are too remain friendly. Well, it, I think, you know, that report very much reflects this idea that there's perhaps a, a culture clash, that mm. there's a lot of new faces coming in, uh, a lot of new ideas coming in. And it's unrealistic to expect that people who perhaps had strong views the other way on Brexit can lose them overnight to you know, to, to to sort of incorporate these new policies. So there's going to be these, um, you know, people, you know, people disagreeing with each other. How that plays out is very much down to, uh, you know, the culture that Boris Johnson wants to uh, have in his government. You know, Dominic Cummings so far has been quite abrasive, uh, if you want to put it that way. Um, you know, that, that it seems to be somewhat... Uh, a deliberately policy to um, create these conflicts and tensions at the moment. Whether that, you know, holds over the next twelve months or so, we'll see. Well, we reached the Dominic Cummings moment. I was at the sort of time now. What, how, <laughs> how long can one go on <laughs> the talking about the government the without the name Dominic Cummings? Up? And what was fascinating, uh, as you know, get your take, suggestions over the weekend again in the press that there may be a moment where Dominic Cummings becomes too much the story and therefore rather less the sort of person they want to have in there. The moment of uh, dropping the pilot or something. Could that happen? Typically, governments are not too happy when the senior advisor becomes uh, the front page news day after day. Uh, that said, it's, you know, Boris Johnson's government is not a typical approach to governing. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a change from what we've certainly what we've seen from uh, the last two co conservative leaders. Uh, so, you know, that is really the question is to what extent does does Johnson want this kind of uh, approach? To what extent is he happy that Cummings is, you know, to a certain extent taking some of the flack for, for things that the government is is doing that are perhaps are slightly more controversial? So, you know, we, we have to wait and see. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. 
It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Roger, kick us off. Well, it's the export of a British beef lasagna, which could prompt hundreds of pounds in extra costs in 2021. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And then we're going to have a look at what's going on in the Cabinet Office, because they are trying to get a hold of a new civil servant to oversee their human resources policy for special advisors. Now, according to BuzzFeed, the role follows reports of tensions between the government and the civil service over the recruitment and treatment of staff. Now, it comes after... Boris Johnson's senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, talked of a need to upgrade the skills of these special advisors, the SPADs, in a blog post in January. Cummings said the civil service lacked people with deep expertise in specific fields. Now, in The Times, Dominic Cummings responded to claims that ministerial advisors have sought counselling for stress by suggesting they need to be tough to work in government. He said, if I had personal issues with a family tragedy, I wouldn't be working in this place. I would leave. Quite stunning words there from Dominic Cummings. Uh, Let's bring you an update on the Priti Patel Home Office spat. In the last uh, hour or so, the uh, PM's press secretary said he has full confidence in Priti Patel as Home Secretary. He's confident that Patel is also getting full security briefs. It's something we talked about in the first part of the programme. This, of course, comes as the Home Office says it's deeply concerned about a number of allegations against the Home Secretary, which it says are false. Priti Patel has been accused of trying to force out her department's most senior civil servant and is facing claims that MI5 doesn't trust her. She's said to be absolutely livid and demanding a leak inquiry. Now, meanwhile, work still needed to prevent more flooding across much of the country this morning. Around 100 warnings remain in place. England, Wales and Scotland all have those which say immediate action is required. Boris Johnson's been criticised for not visiting flooded areas like he did before December's election. The Environment Secretary, George Eustace, insists the Prime Minister is involved. In a cabinet government, it's not a a one-man show. Uh, It's right uh, that on certain operational uh, uh, things such as this, the Prime Minister will ask one of his cabinet members to lead. I can't see anything wrong with that. Well, let's go back to that lasagna I was speaking about before, because the CBI, I don't know, are they big lasagna eaters? Perhaps they are. They've offered some potential consequences, including lasagna, unless the UK and the EU find solutions to this year's trade talks. That's according to the Confederation of British Industries report called the Red Tape Challenge. Describes the sort of scenarios we could expect to see under a Canada-style agreement. It includes mattress makers having to set fire to their products twice. Yes, you heard that correctly. If rules for flammability resistance aren't deemed equivalent between the two sides. So these are some of the potential muddles we could be getting ourselves into under such an agreement. Joining us now is Nicole Sykes. She's the head of EU negotiations at the CBI. And Nicole, good to have you. Talk us about some of these extra 
cost? Because you cited a number of examples in your report. Uh, Yeah, there are a number of examples. I mean, we've looked across the sectors. We represent everyone from garden shed manufacturers through to game designers, um, looking at where do you worry about red tape that needs to be handled by negotiators. Um, It's worth saying that this is coming from a constructive point of view. How do we make sure that we avoid costs Mm. like possibly hundreds of extra pounds to export fans of lasagna, as, as you've talked about, um, extra costs on chicken curry if it's if it's going abroad. Um, how do we avoid them? How do we make sure that negotiators do this within what the government has set out? Now, we've accepted that frictionless trade is going to end. There are going to be new costs and complexities and new red tape, but we need to make sure that they're kept as low as possible in order to make sure that companies can still be competitive and focus on growth and jobs. But isn't there a corollary to this, which was one of the points put by the people supporting Brexit in the beginning, was that the complaints that were out there about red tape from the EU, that was the whole problem. That, that, that future in the future, British manufacturers and exporters will be released from red tape rather than getting more of it. So whenever you export, even if you're exporting to the US or Turkey or wherever you're exporting to, you need to apply their rules, um, whatever it is. And because the EU has so many rules, um, it makes the barriers for trade so much higher. Um, uh, We've talked a little bit about the lasagna, so kind of giving an example of what those rules might look like. You need declarations at customs that can cost £100 per shipment. Um, You need to provide 24 hours pre-notification to make sure that they are in the system in time Um, and then you need to have a vet inspect your product now because the vet has to look at sort of all of the components in something that's seen as a pretty simple meal but is actually quite complex and involves a lot of ingredients um, that can be a cost of 200 to 900 pounds because they do it not on the cost of the item but how much of the vet's time it takes now actually over in Ireland we talked to them about sort of just just one company um, how much would it take if you were um, um, uh, BLTs, shipping your BLTs from, from north to south. And they reckoned just one company, it would take about 36 vets working full time each week um, to clear the amount of sandwiches that they send north to south. If you if you kind of expand that over all of the food companies that we have operating from the UK into Europe, that's really quite a lot of checks that you're looking at. So you're saying, okay, if these are really high barriers, how do we make sure that pragmatically we say, The UK has high food standards. The EU has high food standards. Um, What can we accept and kind of reduce in terms of that red tape just to make the, the, the burdens less serious for companies? And it begs the question, though, where are these costs going to go? Because presumably a fair amount is going to get passed on to the consumer. That's definitely the worry. And and it will be consumers on both sides of that border that will pay new costs, pay new tariffs. Um, And if if you look at how those costs will manifest, a lot of it will be new people working in admin, um, doing form filling and, and, and checking. And none of that is sort of productive work. You know, we know that the UK has a productivity challenge. You want that new resource, whatever resource you can, to be spent on growth and innovation and sales and exploring new markets. Um, so this is sort of in line with the UK government's levelling up agenda. How do we make sure we're creating productive jobs and not sort of backroom um, like box ticker jobs instead? But, but what you're saying is that if, in a way, if there were no equivalents, let's call it that, uh, recognised equivalents between UK standards and EU standards, there would be all this. Is there not a, a, a strong possibility in these talks 
each side, for their own reasons, will accept uh, elements of equivalence, and there won't be all this form-filling. They'll just be able to say, well, overall, as long as one side reports and the other side reports, we can compare the reports, we don't need this. And that's definitely what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to achieve that kind of constructive solutions-based approach from both sides. Um, If you look at what the UK government and indeed the EU have set down so far in terms of their objectives, there's a lot of it that business can support. Both sides want zero tariffs. That would be a huge reduction, particularly for people in food and in, and, 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 and in cars. They want to recognise the qualifications of lawyers and accountants and architects, um, which again, particularly for small services providers, is really important. Both sides want to make sure that uh, business people can travel for short-term visits, for signing contracts, for installing new factories and, and processes. Um, so there's some really, like, of our 22 recommendations, actually a fair number are being progressed already by both sides. But on customs cooperation and regulatory cooperation, I'd say it's a little bit more vague. It's, it's, they say they want to work together, but it's not yet been defined how you want to work together. So we've said on services, on regulation and on customs, here are some ways that you can do that. Learning from Canada, learning from Chile, learning from New Zealand, learning from the rest of the world um, about how they do this in the most effective way. It won't be as effective as we have now. There will be new barriers. Um, there will be new frictions. There will be new costs. But these practical recommendations will reduce a fair number of those. And we talked a little bit about regulatory divergence. Is there anybody among your membership who are touting the benefits of that? Um, so there are companies who do see benefits for divergence. Um, we've talked already a bit about food and, and there's definitely farmers saying, can we manage nitrates in soil differently? Um, can we bring plants to market more quickly? Um, can we expand the number of innovative gins that we produce? You know, there are people looking at these different opportunities. Um, uh, but by and large, they are saying it's difficult and we don't want to cut off our market access. We don't sort of want to cut off our nose to, to, to spite our face on this. Um, So the government wants to be able to have the right to diverge. So we've said, okay, let's do this in a sensible way. Let's form a mechanism for managing that divergence. Let's assume that equivalence from day one. And then over time, as either the UK or the EU chooses to change their rules and kind of pull the economies apart, you can have that choice. You can have that kind of sovereign rights, that control that you asked for, but let's do it kind of in a case-by-case sensible way and manage that process over time. But you're talking there, obviously, about deals between or movements of goods between the EU and the UK. What we also know is there's another border, a border down the Irish Sea. Now, the Sunday Times was talking about this, reporting British Brexit negotiators trying to find a way around actually uh, doing, you know, avoiding checks on the goods in that sort of way. Um, Well, let's take your BLT you were talking about going Mm. from Ireland up there. If it had to come across from Belfast to London, um, well, that's going to be a further problem. More checks, more red tape. So we know that um, the UK government is trying to make sure that if it's coming from Belfast to London, it's fairly easy. And, and that's in their power to do. They can say, we're not going to implement many checks on that way. What's more difficult is if it's going from London or indeed Wales into Belfast and, and what the checks will be that way. Um, and, and the BLT is a good example because about 60% of that traffic is to do with retail. Um, it's it's people buying stuff on Amazon and, and e-commerce and, and indeed um, uh, the number of food manufacturers we have over there. 
Um, and to be honest, the talks on how to reduce those checks and that red tape haven't started yet. So the biggest message I hear from Northern Irish business is, can we start these talks, please? Can we set up these committees you've said that we can have and we can start putting in the detail under this? You have good intentions, but we don't really know what it means in practice. Um, uh, so that's a huge priority. And, and we do think, and we say in the report, if it is going from these big retail companies into Northern Ireland, you know that those goods are pretty much going to stay there. It's not going to reach the European market, and so you should be able to keep that red tape low. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.